Please open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. Every Sunday we, we come to an intersection, your life and the Word of God. And the starting point is right where you're at. Everything you've been through, everything you're going through, what your life is like right now is now going to collide with the Word of God. And the end point for believers will be sanctification. For unbelievers, it will be salvation or condemnation because they refuse to believe in Christ. But we come to this intersection today as we do every week when we come to the Word of God and our life is going to collide now with God's Word and the question is, will we bow or will we, will we pridefully go our own way? Today, we're looking at how Christians can effectively defend the faith in a hostile world. So please stand with me if you are able. I'm going to read verses 13 through 17, 1 Peter 3. It's been said that a, the best defense is a good offense, and it also is said that defense wins championships. Some of you might remember football player Reggie White was known in college and in the pros as the minister of defense. He was known for menacing tackles, bruising hits, and living his life um, for Christ. But the question today is, how is a Christian supposed to operate in a hostile world? And these verses are, are going to instruct us about being ready, to give it offense, about the hope that is within us, and we know that Christ in us is our hope of glory. 1 Peter 3, verse 13. This is the word of God. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will, then for doing evil. Lord God, we are here today at this intersection of, of life. Um, and Lord, we are, are humbled in your presence and we are in awe of your word. Pray that that would be true of all of us, Lord. And Lord, I pray that you, by your Spirit, would teach us. Teach us how we can effectively defend the faith in a world that is opposed to the gospel truth. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You know, I usually say, please be seated, but you can keep standing if you'd like. Have at it. You know, in the 
book of Nehemiah chapter 8, they stood up to read God's word, I think, for five, six hours straight. So what's, you know, 40, 45 minutes? As long as you're not blocking anyone's view, of course. How is a Christian supposed to operate in a hostile world? That's the question. These verses instruct us to always be ready to give a defense for the hope that's in us. Colossians 1.27 tells us Christ in us is our hope of glory. So what does it take to be effective defenders of the faith? What does it take in, in a hostile world to be an effective defender of the faith for Christ's sake? God desires Christians to respond in a hostile world in several significant ways that we see in, the, in this, these verses. We're talking about a ready defense. Now the verses we're looking at today, our scripture passage, continues the idea that we saw last week that we are blessed in Christ to be a blessing for Christ. And verse 13 begins with the Greek word chi, which is and, and it connects the argument that Peter was starting from Psalm 34. And the context is submission to God while you are suffering through this life. And so he has said from Psalm 34, right in this immediate context, we need to stay in the context always when we are handling Scripture. He says, whoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit and turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. And he says the reason why is because the eyes of God are on the righteous and he listens to their prayer. But the face of God is against those who do evil. And then he says, and who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? So we're going to see what God desires. And verse 15 is really the key here. We're going to see three necessary ingredients for a ready defense. Most people, when they talk about defending the faith, they say, I want to be an apologist, you know, and, and uh, the word defense here in verse 15 is the Greek word apologia, which is basically apology, apologetics, but people start thinking, oh, I just need to go speak and give the defense, and, and they, they don't realize what's in this verse. There's much more to it than that, and it doesn't start with your words. But before we get there, I just want to say that as to any worthwhile endeavor, you do anything in life that's good, there's going to be some sort of opposition to it or some sort of barrier to that happening. Nothing good you do in life has, uh, is without opponents in, in the sense of an enemy in the way of that good thing. And what that, I want to bring that up because it brings our fallen condition into clear focus. When we're coming to this passage of Scripture, we're coming from all sorts of backgrounds, all sorts of things going on in our lives, some that people are aware of, some things that people aren't aware of, good things, bad things, everything in between. But Peter is really answering the enemies of an effective defense for the gospel. First and foremost, fear. He talks about not fearing. Fear is, is a, um, a big determiner in many people's lives. I, I don't want to do that because I'm afraid of it or I'm afraid of what's going to happen. A lot of Christians will say, I don't want to be a defender of the faith because then I will have to admit that I am a believer. If I admit that I'm a believer, then I'm going to be asked questions and, whew, I don't want to face that. And there's fear. There's also laziness. 
You're not ready. You're not prepared. And American Christians especially, we are so susceptible to this. We, we have this kind of smugness that we've been chosen. We have salvation. Now, those other people, they got issues. And we start thinking that somehow, and it's, it's just pride, that somehow what we've got in Christ was because of something good we did. It's just not the case. So we can't let the enemies of fear and laziness or even self-righteous pride deter us from the good things that God wants to do in us and through us for the gospel. There's these roadblocks, these barriers, this sin, this deception, this even entitlement that Christians sometimes have. Or it could be the lie. You might just be believing the lie. I'm not good enough to bring the gospel message because of all that I have done wrong. And plenty of people will, will think that way. They'll think, I've sinned too much. God can't use me for the gospel. Or they'll say, I'm sinning too much right now. God can't use me. I'm not smart enough. I don't know the Bible well enough. Or I'm, I'm not mature enough as a Christian. Or I haven't learned enough lessons in Christ to bring the gospel message. I would just say to you, if you're five years old and you know the gospel story, you can defend the faith. A, whole, a, a Holy Spirit in, indwelt believer with the Bible can defend the faith. One more thing I want to say before we jump into this is that there are two ways you can live your, your life if you are a professing believer. Two ways. One is that you're always trying to justify yourself before God. Always trying to be good enough. It's justificational living, not trusting in the justification you have in Christ, but trying to earn your way to God and justify your place in God's kingdom. And, and that's an empty pursuit because the price was already paid at the cross by Christ's shed blood, and you can't add anything to that, nor should you try. So those professing believers that are in this lifelong struggle to be good enough need to just stop and start living that second way. Sanctificational living. Sanctification living. Because of what God has done in Christ at the cross, in shedding his blood for me, in saving me, I aspire to serve him and please him with my life. It's a lifelong process where God is at work and you are making real choices in your life. And you realize more and more what Brian said when he was praying even, that we, we think more and more how much we need Jesus. How much we are desperate for Jesus on a daily basis. We apply the blood of Christ because it's being applied to us on a moment-by-moment -moment basis in Christ. Peter starts off this letter and he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctifying work of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling with His blood. And yes, I'm memorizing 1 Peter. Yes, I'm all the way to these verses today. I hope you're with me because it, it's been life-changing for me to think about these verses on a daily basis multiple times a day. But I say this because what Peter is going to tell us right now, we're not just getting transported into the middle of this letter. He has set the groundwork. He, he set the foundation. 
The question today is, how can Christians live an effective life of defending the faith? But it's about believers. And he's already made it clear, you're not in Christ by your own doing. You're elect. You you have been caused to be born again through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. It's, It's through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. It's for obedience to Jesus Christ in your life that you would be sprinkled with his blood, that you would be identified with Jesus all the time in every aspect of your life. God inspires Christians to to live and to act in certain ways. And this is what Peter's talking about. Write this down if you want the main point. Here it is. God inspires Christians to have a fearless heart bold words and a humble life a fearless heart bold words and a humble life that's what these verses are are talking about it starts in your heart the first thing is not hey we've got to defend the faith we've got to come up with our plan of attack and we've got to have all these explanations ready Got to study all night and read all the books we can and, and be ready, be loaded for bear. It starts in your heart. It's a fearless heart that God inspires in believers to fearlessly honor Jesus. That you need to fear God more than man and honor Jesus in your heart. That's, that's where the best defense is a good offense. It starts in your heart. It starts in the faith God has given you, in, the, in, in your belief. Look at verse 13. Peter begins, now, and who is there to harm you? Who's there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? Zealous comes from the same word meaning jealous. And we, we think of jealousy as so bad on a human point, because it is. But in God's economy, when God is called a jealous God. He, he is zealous for his own name and for who he is. And, and you, we are to be zealous, jealous for good, for who God is. But he says, who are, is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? It, it, it mirrors what Paul says to the Romans when he, he says in Romans 8. Some people love this chapter. I, I love this chapter. Verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? Paul has just told them that God works all things together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he glorified. And then he says, what shall we say about that? He says this. If God is for us, who can be against us? It's a rhetorical question. It's the question Peter's saying, who is there to harm you? The answer is no one ultimately. Verse 14, he says, you might suffer for righteousness sake, but you're blessed. You might suffer here on earth, but it's not going to touch your soul. It's not going to touch your soul. Paul goes on in Romans 8. He says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You have Jesus, you have everything. Everything you need. 
Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Paul keeps asking the rhetorical question. Peter asks it once. Paul keeps going. He says, it's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who is also interceding for us. Jesus is praying for believers. And then he says in verse 35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? He says, no. It's not going to happen. In all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us, through Jesus. He says in verse 38, I am sure that neither death nor life Nothing going on in your life right now? Nothing that's going to happen in your life in the future can separate a believer from Jesus. So the first thing that that Peter is saying is you make sure in your heart that Jesus is in the right spot. You make sure that Jesus is preeminent in your heart it's Colossians 1.18 that, that Jesus might, might come to have first place in everything preeminence even if you should suffer for righteousness sake you're going to be blessed blessed is an interesting word isn't it you ask someone how are you doing today I'm blessed I'm blessed and they might mean everything's going my way but you ask someone in the midst of suffering how are you doing today? And they say, not so well, but I'm blessed in Christ because I I have forgiveness. Jesus shed his blood for me. I have an eternal hope. You know, blessed does not mean this general happiness. So I'm so happy because I got everything I wanted, but it's the motive for the privilege and the honor of suffering. You catch that? Even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, which people don't usually suffer for doing the right thing, you will be blessed. You're blessed in Christ, therefore, to be a blessing for Christ. Whatever path God might take you on. Jesus said in Matthew 5.10, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Peter, he says, have no fear of them. Who? People who oppose you, he says. Uh, Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Literally, don't fear their intimidation. Don't fear their fear, literally. It's phobos, phobos, phobia, phobia. Don't fear their fear. You know, Jesus said in Luke 12, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and afterwards have nothing more they can do to you. So they kill your body, they can't kill your soul. But he says, I will warn you who to fear. Fear him who after he is killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. That's God Almighty. He says, look, aren't five little sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them falls to the ground. Not one of them is forgotten before God or it doesn't just fall to the ground without God knowing he says why even the hairs of your head are all numbered even those who are bald you know God knows I guess how many places the hairs used to be 
all those microscopic little holes in your skull. Scalp. Brains aren't going to Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many little birds. So there's Peter waiting in the courtyard while Jesus is being examined. And he fails miserably. He falls on his face. And the reason why is because he feared man. He was afraid. With loud cursing, he insisted he didn't know Jesus. I wonder how many times, how often Peter thought about that situation. How many times he kind of beat himself up over it or just remembered and had so much regret. But I'm wondering also, in light of Peter's words here, how many times he remembered Jesus shed his blood for that sin I committed. Jesus shed his blood for, for what I did. Jesus isn't condemning me anymore for my sins. That's how you should be thinking if you're a Christian. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus, you can remember all the things you've done because of fear of man. Or you can remember how good God is in forgiving you and saving your soul because he knew you better than you know yourself. He knows you far better than you understand. Peter is quoting from the Old Testament again here. He says in verse 14, Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. He's quoting from Isaiah chapter 8, verses 12 and 13. Here's what that, those verses say. Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. And do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. What were they fearing back then when Isaiah was writing? They were fearing the king. They were fearing the, the armed power of their enemies. And, and the cure was the awareness of God's glory because verse 13 says, But the Lord of hosts... Him shall you honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. And here's the significant thing. Peter, in 1 Peter 3, 14, says, Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. And then verse 15, But in your heart regard Christ the Lord as holy. And what he is doing very significantly here is identifying Jesus as the Lord of hosts. From Isaiah chapter 8. That Jesus is the Lord of armies. Literally. God Almighty, deity. They were fearing the king and the power of their enemy. And the cure was an awareness of God's glory and, and to honor and fear him. You know how Peter lost his fear of man? By getting the fear of God. By getting the fear of God. Verse 15 says, Honor Christ the Lord as holy in your hearts. Honor him. Some, some Bible translations say sanctify, consecrate. The idea is set Jesus apart in your heart. Treat him as holy. Give him the primary place of worship and praise to Jesus. Give Jesus your worship and your praise and your adoration. That's why it's Colossians 1.18 stuff. It's that Jesus would have preeminence in your heart. In your heart. You haven't said a word yet. You're like, but I want to get out there and defend the faith. 
You haven't said a word yet. We're talking about your heart. Calm down. Let's talk about the heart. So Peter's saying, it's so, so often people use this. This is the apologetics 101 verse. Is it not? 1 Peter 3.15, it's for apologists, Christian apologists who, who know all the answers. No, it's for believers who are tossed by the winds and waves of doubt and unbelief and fear and who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God and have the word of God and know their story. Your story. What did God do in your life? By the way, this is not an external thing. I said, it's not your words yet. We're still talking about the heart. Peter's still on the heart here. It's an internal thing of true worshipers. Like Jesus said in John 4, when he was talking to the woman at the well, that the Father is seeking worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. It's an internal thing first. God wants you to fear him more than people who harass you for your faith. Fear God more than the potential of being harassed for the faith if you admit that you're a believer. You know, fear God more than someone finding out you're a Christian and then maybe asking you some questions. Who is there to harm you, he says. Who can separate you from the love of God? Nobody can touch you. Nobody can touch your soul. You're unbreakable. You're, you're un, unbendable. You're untouchable. You're unshakable in Christ. And you're weak and frail and needy and dependent. That's the beauty of Jesus in you. This broken jar with the glory of God and His strength that you can depend on and Trust in, in your heart. You haven't said a word yet. It's in your heart. See, those who fearlessly honor Jesus in their hearts, they fear immortal, invisible, God-only wise. They fear God. They don't know it all. The best defense starts with this total dependence, this sole desire uh, on your part to magnify Jesus. You say, in my heart, I want Jesus to be first. All the wishes and longings that are thronging in, in your heart and are in line for attention, you're saying everything and everyone is secondary to Jesus in my heart. You can't do that on your own. You can't talk yourself into it. You've got to trust the Holy Spirit. But you've got to want that more than, more than anything. Then you can speak. Then God will let you talk. See, a lot of us, I, look, I'm a talker. I talk too much. They called me motor mouth when I was in elementary school. I was my teacher. You think I'm joking? I'm not. A nickname from my teacher, Motormouth. A lot of Christians are Motormouths. They just want to start talking and they don't settle the heart issues. And everything gets out of kilter. You settle the heart. 
settle the heart. Then what you'll see is that God is going to inspire you with bold words. Bold words. Because you will zealously defend hope. Fearlessly honoring Christ in your heart, to have that, that fearless heart is, is, has to do with your faith, your belief, internal. But this now comes to be your actual words. You're going to speak now. You're going to think about it and say something. Look, I know how often I, I, I put my foot in my mouth, sometimes both feet at the same time. I do it multiple times a day. But here, God wants you to measure your words and be zealous for what is good. And verse 15 says, Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. The defense. It's give an answer. It's speak a word. Now, zealously defending the hope that you have in Christ doesn't usually mean carrying a big sign and using a bullhorn. But it could. There's no law against that on most street corners. But it says that you should be prepared. You should be ready. You should be on the alert. Wartime. Spiritual warfare. This is wartime tactics. All the time for a Christian on earth in a hostile world that's opposed to the gospel of the grace of God in Christ. Luke 12, Jesus said, I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. I don't want to misunderstand this, but I read this and I'm like, I want the first, not the second. I want to be acknowledged, not denied. It says, when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, don't be anxious about what you're going to say to defend yourself or what you should say, but the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. You're like, well, wait a minute. I got to go home? It's not... Look, in less than 24 hours, I'll be at work. I got to get ready to make a defense for anyone who asks me for the hope that's in me. I got to study up. I got to read every book there is on the subject. You got the book? You read this book on the subject. Read other books if you'd like to that will help you to understand it. But know this book. You go in there with the Holy Spirit. I just say, you, you've got this. Don't be so afraid. You've got this. You're a, if you're a believer with the Holy Spirit in you and you've got the Word of God, you've you got this because Jesus got you. <laughs> That's not correct English, but you know what I mean. To make a defense, you give an answer, give an account where we get our word apology and apologetics. It can mean a formal defense in a court of law, and it could mean this informal questioning that happens, you know, around the water cooler. And, and did you notice that it says you should always be ready? This is not, hey, I'm going to be ready for the test on Friday. You've got to test every day. Always. Consistently prepared and ready to respond. It's like disaster preparedness. And it says to give an account. That's the word logos, uh, the word, the message. Give the right words in response to the question asked at the time of the question. You're prepared to give an answer to maybe a sincere question, maybe a hostile question, maybe an accusation, maybe a very critical question. 
but you're given an answer for your hope. What does that mean? The hope that's in you. That's your faith in Christ. That's Christian faith. And think about it. You, you came to faith in Christ. You, you, you came to the point where you said, I can't save myself. Jesus is the only Savior and, and the only Lord. And, and, I'm, I'm, and I'm anticipating eternal glory in heaven as a result of my faith in Christ. See, every believer needs to understand why they believe in Jesus. You believe in Jesus, you've got to be able to know and, and explain it humbly and boldly and thoughtfully and biblically. I think you know I like to use these words humble, bold together. I kind of love the little hyphen in the middle. I love saying humble, bold. For years, someone will say to me, what, what, what can I pray for you about? If I don't have a specific prayer request, like, you know, really, really specific, I'll say, pray that I'll be a humble, bold servant of God in my home and in the church and in the community been doing this for years before i ever came here and i love peter this is one of the reasons i love peter so much you want a good nickname for peter humble bold apostle of hope there's a good nickname for peter humble bold apostle of hope but he wasn't always this way he was prideful he was arrogant he was fearful by the way if you don't know what you believe you got to find out if you don't know what you believe maybe you don't believe if you can't say why you're a christian you might not be a christian figure it out and and i don't think you need to study all night and get prepped up because you've been getting prepped since you since your new birth maybe 20 years ago maybe five years ago maybe maybe two weeks ago have you heard about by the way the space probe that landed on a comet just this week and no american pride here the americans didn't do it you know about this? You heard about it? Yes, some of you know. It, this com- comet landing was, it was huge. Wednesday, November 12th, just this past Wednesday, this robotic spacecraft about as big as your washing machine, it was created by the European Space Agency, and, and it became the first to land on a solid central part of a comet. This comet is 30, no, 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 300 million miles from Earth, farther than L.A. County. And, and, but here's the deal. This is why I want to tell you about this. Planning for the journey started 25 years ago. 25 years, not 25 days ago. 25 years ago. And, and get this, the mission itself took 10 years. They launched this washing machine out into space 10 years ago. 2004. Do you remember 2004, 10 years ago? What you were doing, what you were wearing, what kind of haircut you had? Traveled 6.4 billion miles en route to the comet. I don't know how to count that, but wow. You say, well, I need to know how to defend the faith. You've been getting prepped since your new birth. Relax. You got the word of God. You got the Holy Spirit. Just go to work tomorrow. Go to school tomorrow. Ask God to give you the words that he wants you to say. He will. You're going to either be, by the way, a defender of the faith or a defector from the faith. And there have been some famous defections and Peter is first in line as exhibit A. But he's also right up there in exhibit A on the, on the 
famous defenses of the faith. Go to Acts 4 with me. I love this story. Here's Peter and John, and they're before the council, and they're speaking to the people, the priests, captains of the temple, the Sadducees rushed upon them. They were really, really mad at them because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Preaching the gospel. They arrested them. They put them in custody. There were about 5,000 people that had gotten saved. And, and the rulers, the next day, the, the scribes and the elders gathered in Jerusalem. Annas the high priest and Caiaphas were there, and they, they put them in the middle of the group. And here's what they said. By what power or by what name do you do this? By what power did you do what you did? Tell us right now. I love verse 8. But Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit said to them, rulers of the people, elders, if, you're, if we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, a guy got healed in the name of Jesus. By what means this man has been healed? Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by, this, by him this man is standing before you well. And he goes on. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you. The builders. Peter put that in his letter. I love it. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. You've got to believe that with all your heart. Peter did. His defense was dripping with the gospel because he believed the gospel with all his heart. And he knew where he'd come from. You've got to know where you came from. You've got to know your story. And you've got to know what God did. It didn't stop there, by the way. They recognized that they had been with Jesus. And they commanded them to get out so they could talk to one another. And then they said this, you can't talk anymore in the name of Jesus. And here is their response. Verse 19. Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. They were compelled by the Holy Spirit to do what was right. They were zealous for what is good. They weren't fearing man. There's a lot of famous defenses of the faith. I was going to tell you the story of my friend Tom Munson, but I'm running out of time, and I care about your time. But Tom's spiritual birthday was on uh, the 14th, Friday, 11 14 76. When he was in the ninth grade, he became a believer in Jesus. And uh, so I told him happy spiritual birthday on, on, uh, on, on Friday, or whatever day that was. Was it Saturday? I don't know. What day is today? The 16th? It was Friday. And he wrote me back. He, he wrote his story of how he became a believer that night. Doug Roller was there and some of his other friends from high school and he told the whole story probably look on my Facebook account and find it but millions of people millions have their a story you have if you're a Christian you have a story it's yours but it better have Jesus in it big time he better be the main character because you need to defend the hope that you were born again to you need to put into words your story and tell it often 
What did God do? And by the way, you don't need to defend the Bible. It's like a lion. You set it free, it takes care of itself. You defend the hope that's in you. You make a statement regarding your hope in Christ. It's personal. Did you catch the specifics, by the way, of who you are to speak with? Did you catch this? Look again, it says, it says this. It, to make a defense to anyone who asks you. To anyone who asks you. Now, a lot of people will say, I haven't been asked, I'm off the hook. And we have plenty of ways to help ourselves not get asked. That's not the point. If you zealously defend the hope that's within you, it's because you're consumed by a passion for the person of Jesus Christ, the one who is jealous for his holy name. You ready to give an account for the hope that's within you? By the way, you're you're engulfed in cross-cultural interaction every single day. Did you know that? Did you know that a biblically saturated, Christ-centered, God-fearing, gospel-focused, Jesus-loving, they all have hyphens, person is living a counterculture for the glory of God and the good of mankind every single day. Your cross-cultural interactions are because of who you are in Christ. And it might have someone with a different color skin or a different language as well. But your first cross-cultural interactions are because you are living a counterculture for the glory of God and the good of mankind. All right, let's get to the last point I want to make because I tell you what, it's not just enough to have it in your heart and then to say words because if, if we don't get this third thing down, we are in big trouble. And we will, we will, by our lives, hurt the cause of the gospel. See, God inspires Christians uh, to fearlessly honor Christ, the deep belief in Christ. Christ as Lord. But also to zealously defend the hope because your words are important. You've got to speak gospel truth. But the last part is about your life. And it's this, that God inspires in, in believers a humble life. A humble life where you righteously live and you are willing to suffer persecution. Uh, you need a heart sold out to Jesus and to fearlessly honor him as Lord and, and zealously defend the hope with words that express the gospel clearly, but you also need to have a life that actually lines up with the gospel truth you, you profess. If not, you're living a lie. You're living something that negates the gospel truth. And the gospel stands. Verse 16 says, you do what you do with gentleness and respect. That's gentleness towards man and respect. It's the same word phobeo again, reverence for God, fear of God. So you have humility and meekness towards people, not weakness, but you're not overly dominant. You're not overly aggressive. You're, you're being yourself and you, you are devoted to God with a deep concern for his truth and for the souls of people. And you go do, you go live in such a way. You know what good conscience means? Having a good conscience means you know the moral quality of your actions. That your actions matter. And your actions have a moral quality. And when your conscience condemns you, it's because your actions don't have a moral quality that lines up with the gospel. This is where the rubber meets the road for Christians. In how we live, we can say the perfect thing. 
We can say the perfect defense and not be in line with the gospel. Don't look at the clock. I've got that for you. Worship team's going to come back up in a moment. Um, But I'll tell you, verse 17 says, it's better to suffer for doing good if God should will it than for doing evil. Everyone suffers in many ways. Every one of us is suffering right this moment. All because of the fall. All because of sin. Not always because of some sin we've committed. But all because of the fall. And by the way, every Christian is a model of suffering. Some just happen to be great models and some happen to be models you don't want to emulate. The freedom we have here in America can be a deterrent to boldness and humility of heart. Don't let your freedom be a cause for stumbling because you get lazy or you get deluded or entitled or hyper self-focused. Don't go there. Peter is like pleading with us. Just do, be fearlessly bold in your heart with Christ as Lord and, and use bold words and a humble life to back it up. Do that. And the big why is because of verse 18. See, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous so that he might bring us to God. That's the reason we can do this. So are you ready? Lord God, thank you that you inspire a fearless heart where Christ is revered as Lord and, and bold words that are ready to give an answer for the hope you've given us and a humble life that reflects the truth of the gospel. We are convinced that you inspire this and convinced that the world needs Christians ready to humbly and boldly believe and speak and live in Christ. And we pray, Lord, that from our mission base, right here, every day when we awake, we recommit ourselves to you and the word of your grace for your glory. Amen.